Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Uh, good morning and uh, welcome to you. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine here on Channel Africa. We are the voice of the African Renaissance. We're broadcasting live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 6145 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. My name is Asanda Matsaunya and welcome to the show and I'm with Anne Musa, Jwala Netulo and Tamikuza in studio today. This is what's coming up on Africa Rise and Shine this hour. Kenya says no police officer was killed in Al-Shabaab attack. Concerns over the current humanitarian situation in Burundi and efforts get underway in Mali to provide food to 3 million people. In economics, Zambia cuts its power generation by 300 megawatts. And in sports, Nigerian striker wins BBC Women's Footballer of the Year award. Let's get the news headlines now. Before we get details on those stories, here's Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. Libya's Prime Minister Abdullah Al-Tani has survived an assassination attempt. His car was hit by bullets when armed men opened fire as it was leaving an area where a session of parliament was held. The incident followed a meeting of the country's internationally recognized parliament in Tobruk. Libya's government and elected parliament relocated to Tobruk after an armed group based in the northwestern city of Masrata seized the capital Tripoli and most government institutions lost here. African Union observers say Ethiopia's parliamentary election held on Sunday was credible except for a few irregularities. Former Namibian president and head of the observer mission Hafiki Punye Puhamba declared that the parliamentary elections were calm, peaceful and credible as it provided an opportunity for the Ethiopian people to express their choices at the polls. Provisional results are due later this week. Video footage found in captured Boko Haram camps by Nigeria's military seems to give some of the clearest indication that foreign fighters hold positions of power within the Nigerian Islamist militant group. The military is analyzing the footage to identify fighters and study the group's internal dynamics. The Nigerian government has previously spoken of foreign influence within the ranks of the jihadists but lacked hard evidence to back up its assertion. There are strong hopes that relations between South Africa and Nigeria will improve under the new government in Abuja. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma is to attend the inauguration of Nigeria's President-elect Mohamedou Buhari on Friday. Nigerian Senator Nuruddin Abatengi Osman expects this to usher in better ties between Abuja and South Africa. The two countries need each other. Africa needs those two countries um, relating together. It's um, a relationship that needs to be fostered, that needs to be, 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 more, uh, be more engaged and um, um, it can only be uh, good for the people of these two countries and indeed the rest of Africa. 
A reduction in cholera cases among Burundian refugees and locals in Tanzania's Lake Tanganyika region has been confirmed by the United Nations Refugee Agency. UNHCR says the cholera epidemic, which has been spawned on by a massive influx of people fleeing political unrest in Burundi, has claimed 30 lives. Spokesperson in Geneva, Adrian Edwards. In all, 4,408 cases have so far been reported but the number of new cases daily has fallen to around 100 from a peak of 915 on the 18th of May. The reduction in cases is largely due, we think, to the concerted approach to contain the spread of the outbreak through intensified measures to promote hygiene. For now, the situation is improving, but clearly resolving fully will take several weeks. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine here on Channel Africa. If you've just joined us, good morning. My name is Asanda Mazaunyani. Somalia's Al-Shabaab militants claim that they killed 25 Kenyan security men in the northeastern country of Garissa. But Kenyan authorities have described the claim as a figment of Al-Shabaab imagination and pure propaganda. James Shmanula reports from Nairobi. In a clandestine broadcast from Somalia, the country's Al-Shabaab militants claimed that they had killed more than 20 Kenyan security men in an attack at Yumbis, about 80 kilometers west of Garissa County in Kenya's northeastern region near the border with the Horn of Africa nation. There was no independent verification of the Al-Shabaab claim. However, Kenyan authorities responding to the alleged killings made it clear that only one policeman was killed when Kenyan security personnel were pursuing Al-Shabaab militants that had crossed into the East African nation. Now, Garissa County Commissioner James Sikianda says the situation is relatively calm as Kenyan security team pursues 15 suspected Al-Shabaab militants believed to be hiding in a forest near the county of Garissa. Garissa has come. There was a contact between our security officers who were on patrol with some operatives. And uh, after the exchange, they disappeared into some forest. We organized a team of officers that have been pursuing them. And that operation is going on as we speak now. How can you characterize the situation? It is calm. Looking at uh, the situation, is it a forested area where they may have gone to hide? It's a thick forest. It's a... Would you probably say that uh, you are taken unawares? We are on standby and ready to face any suspected uh, terror group. We were not caught unawares. Al-Shabaab are transmitting from Mogadishu saying that they killed more than 20 Kenyans. How do you respond to that? We did not lose the um, people on the ground. It is only one officer who sustained some injuries. That to me is not true. That's what I've said. What is confirmed and is on the ground is that uh, only one officer succumbed to some damn shot wounds. Amplifying on remarks made by Garissa County Commissioner James Sikianda, Kenya's Interior Ministry spokesman Mwenda Njoka had this to say. It was an exchange of fire. 
two officers were seriously injured and nobody died. But we are getting reports that uh, more than 20 policemen have been killed. Can you kindly confirm or deny? The report about people dying are being sent by Al-Shabaab. How are they being sent by Al-Shabaab and uh, from whom? We have a radio, I'm told there's a radio called Adali that is uh, broadcasting this type of story. From Somalia, from Somalia. They also provide the information to the media. You are aware, you are generous, you know. It is a known thing. There's a propaganda war. They are... What we are seeing here is that uh, Al-Shabaab is spreading what you characterize as propaganda war against Kenya by releasing the death toll to more than 20. You are correct. Al-Shabaab don't have a responsibility. You know, they will come and tell you this and that. A resident of Garissa's Tiffany Astarico, reached by telephone from Nairobi, had a different description of the situation in Garissa, saying it was still tense. The situation as you're speaking is still tense and uh, several security officers have been deployed in the area. That was a resident of Garissa in northeastern Kenya, Stephen Astarico, reporting for Channel Africa. This is James Shimanyula. The International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, IFRC, has expressed grave concern about the current situation in Burundi and its humanitarian consequences in the country and region. Over half of the refugees from Burundi who seek refuge in Tanzania are children who are particularly vulnerable to infectious diseases like cholera. IFRC spokesperson Catherine Muller explains that the situation in that country remains extremely worrying. So the humanitarian situation, particularly there, is very challenging. The people need pretty much absolutely everything. They fled with just what they could carry. So they're arriving. The settlements aren't established fully yet to be able to accommodate them. There's a great worry and concern about health care needs in particular. So the needs are immense. Catherine, eight agencies are reported to be battling to contain a cholera outbreak in Tanzania, which has already killed about 31 people. So how is the IFRC responding to this outbreak? Right, so with the cholera outbreak, it's one of our concerns because it does spread so easily. So what we're doing with the Red Cross is we have trained volunteers in Tanzania. They're from Tanzania, so they, they know the culture and the people, and they live in the area very close to the border with Burundi. So they're able to help the people as they come across and as they get settled, and we're doing a lot of hygiene promotion uh, activities. We're making sure that we're distributing things like basic needs like your buckets and your soap, teaching people, make sure you're washing your hands after using the toilet, make sure you wash your hands before you eat. This basic hygiene can really help um, combat this outbreak. And on the cholera issue, Catherine, suspected cases of cholera inside Burundi raised fears last week of a possible outbreak as some who have crossed the border are reported to be returning to try and access health care inside Burundi. And as you mentioned, that these people are actually on the border between Burundi and Tanzania. So what's the IFRC doing to prevent a possible cholera outbreak inside Burundi? Well, what we're doing is we're basically, like I said, monitoring the situation and the national society, so the Burundi Red Cross, this is something that they do as a matter of course uh, through their normal activities. They're raising awareness about proper hygiene. They're raising awareness about how diseases such as cholera are spread among the population. So they're very well trained in being able to uh, to raise awareness about this issue and 
and, and hopefully the population will listen and adhere to the messaging. And lastly, the IFRC has launched an emergency funding appeal. What are the organization's priorities? Yes, so the emergency appeal is actually for Tanzania because that's where most of the people are fleeing to. So it's just over 1 million Swiss francs. And what we're trying to do is provide emergency assistance to 20,000 of the refugees. And we're focusing on their immediate urgent needs. So it's things like health and water, sanitation, as I mentioned, hygiene promotion, making sure that they have adequate shelter and, of course, providing them with basic household items such as blankets and buckets and soap, this sort of thing. And of course, we are assessing the the situation continuously. So we currently have a team on the ground in Tanzania, and they're gathering information about the growing needs and how the context is changing. And as it changes, we can revise and will revise our plans to reflect the changing needs. That's Catherine Mueller, spokesperson for the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, on the line from Nairobi in Kenya, talking to Jane Matebula. Violence in Burundi and the plight of the world's sea migrants are just two problems that require the international community's immediate attention. This is according to the UN's top human rights official. In a break with protocol, Zaid Raad al-Husseins issued his warning to the Human Rights Council in Geneva as it continues with preparations for its June session. The UN Radio's Catherine Hesselberg reports. The issues might sound familiar, but what wasn't was the way the UN human rights chief attempted to tell the world he's still on the case. In what is the first time Saeed Rad al-Hussein has addressed the Human Rights Council when it's not yet in session, he took the opportunity to address several pressing global issues. On Burundi, al-Hussein said he was alarmed by pre-election violence, an attempted coup and the assassination of opposition leader Sidi Furutsi. And the UN human rights chief also spoke of the 110,000 Burundi frightened refugees who'd fled the country, before saying he wanted the council to send a strong message to stop the violence. Opposition politicians, uh, journalists, prominent human rights defenders, and indeed many people, many ordinary people, uh, still fear for their lives. Al-Hussein also called on the council to make the plight of sea migrants the top priority and consider a special session on it, recalling that those who had taken to the Mediterranean did so out of fear and need. Referring to the European Union's offer to take in 20,000 migrants and wish for UN Security Council-backed action against smugglers, the High Commissioner said a less mean-spirited response would be worthy of UN member states. This disproportionate focus on enforcement and the militarization of that enforcement raises a large number of concerns beyond the urgent and absolute need to protect the lives of the people who seek passage on those boats. Any law enforcement response to migrant smuggling must respect international standards for human rights. And he also spoke of the migration crisis in Southeast Asia, which has seen at least 1,500 people die at sea in the first months of this year. While welcoming the offer of Indonesia and Malaysia to offer temporary shelter to those stranded at sea of their coastline, Al-Hussein said the gesture is not enough. He went on to call for all states in the region to fulfill their obligations to rescue all those in peril at sea. And it's up to Myanmar to offer the Rohingya Muslims who end up on boats the right to a future in freedom and dignity in their home country, Al-Hussein said. 
The UN rights chief also criticized Australia's policy of intercepting migrants at sea and sending them to detention centers where conditions are inadequate. He suggested putting in place new channels of safe and legal migration at places of destination. Finally, Al-Hussein called for action on South Sudan, where fighting has resumed, forcing civilians to trek hundreds of kilometers by foot to seek shelter at UN camps. He said that the previous violence that had gone unpunished was the reason for the ongoing violence, and therefore accountability was a priority in finding a resolution to the conflict. Catherine Hasselberg, United Nations. Efforts are underway in Mali to provide food to some of the 3 million people who do not have enough to eat. The UN World Food Programme says it is distributing 13 tons of high-energy cereal bars. The food aid comes against a backdrop of escalating attacks by armed groups in the north of the country. UN Radio's Catherine Hasselberg again. Insecurity, especially in the north of Mali, has caused around 220,000 people to flee their homes. As fighting between government forces and Tuareg rebels continues, more people require humanitarian support. The World Food Programme, or WFP, says that more than 410,000 people are now in need of immediate food assistance. Both river and road transports have been interrupted by the fighting, hampering deliveries of food assistance, according to the WFP spokesperson in Geneva. The fighting in North Mali is greatly reducing an already limited humanitarian space and hampers vital humanitarian assistance for vulnerable populations. Both rivers and road transport are being severely affected by fighting, disrupting deliveries of food assistance by WFP and partners. Elizabeth Byer says that the current conflict is only adding to an already difficult situation, as more than 3 million people across the country struggle to get enough food to eat. According to WFP, the newly displaced in the Timbuktu region are in urgent need. If the situation continues to deteriorate, we expect more people to be in need of life-saving food assistance. They are in urgent need of water, food, and relief items and of course shelter. WFP says an additional 64 million US dollars is urgently needed to continue meeting the growing needs of the population. The number of people in need of immediate assistance is expected to increase as the host communities brace themselves to face a period without food. Catherine Hasselberg, United Nations. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, réveille-toi. Africa, Africa, Wema. Sun rises. Le soleil est levé. Weya Wema. What's in the happen, Africa? Africa, Dumelang Sanbonani. Africa, Mulishadi, Pulibanji. Africa, Enyomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen, Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, South Africa, Swaziland, Morocco, Botswana, Gabon, Zimbabwe, Mauritania, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia. It doesn't matter where you're from. We are one people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. Africa Rise and Shine. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Good morning to you. And we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. I'm Asanda Matsaunyani. 
The government of Malawi has reduced the allocation for the Farm Input Subsidy Program, FISP, to $89 million from $130 million in the current budget proposal under debate in Lilongwe. This is the first time that Lilongwe has downsized the allocation since 2005 when it was introduced by the late former President Binguwa Mutarika. George Mango reports from Blantyre. Basically, the number of fertilizer subsidy program beneficiaries come the pending growing season will be reduced. Minister of Finance Guru Gondo admits that there have been some valid criticisms regarding the implementation of the program to date. He said the first criticism has been that since its inception, the proportion of the farmer's contribution has been declining and that of the budget has conversely escalated, saying, for instance, the farmer's contribution in the 2005 to 2006 at $2 per bag was 45% of the total cost per bag, but this declined to a meager 3% by last year. Gondo added that the second criticism is on cost overruns, largely due to exchange rates, movements, and government's direct involvement in the procurement, storage, and distribution of the inputs meant that Lilongwe has had to bear the impact of exchange rate depreciations since contracts with suppliers are drawn in U.S. dollars. The minister in the budget proposal admits further that in addition, it has been difficult for the government to control costs due to the markups imposed by different middlemen government contracted. But some think there is need for a complete overhaul. It seems the very same people that benefit from this program seem not to come out of poverty because the aim of this program was to um, help people to come out of abject poverty. There's no reason why government should maintain it. If the measures are put in place that maybe the fertilizer can get right to the, to, to the real farmers like me, then I think this uh, initiative should continue. Gondwe has further said although neither the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund have recommended its elimination, despite a number of criticisms of the program from what he called an insignificant number of people, the government will continue and will maintain its target of reaching out to 1.5 million beneficiaries. This will be achieved through the distribution of 150,000 metric tons of fertilizer as well as improved seed quantities to the households, says Gondwe. But Ephraim Beja, an agricultural expert, says Malawi should find an exit strategy considering the economic meltdown that continues to hit donors who fund the program. Those who are really needy should get the, the bigger share and those who are slightly better off should also get something small that will help them in a way. For long term, we will need to have a situation where we would support the Green Belt more than the subsidies because the Green Belt is a long term solution to hunger than the subsidy which I would term as an aspirin which will just take off the pain in the immediate need but will not solve a bigger problem like malaria. Continental organizations Two, such as the New Economic Partnership for Africa Development, NEPAD, which champions comprehensive Africa agriculture development program CADAP and sustainable land and water management, but the issue of farm input subsidy program with caution. Director of programs at NEPAD, Ethrain Fortabong, said this recently in Ethiopia, Addis Ababa, when asked about her view on challenges facing the subsidies in countries where the economies are agro-based. She observed that the issue of fertilizer subsidies has both advantages and disadvantages. Will it bring additional costs to the farmers? Will they have to pay more to get this? Um, so I think we're looking at different approaches where um, perhaps we might explore working with farmer organizations 
so they extend their, their outreach to their membership. So perhaps instead of not just working with the private sector, this farmer organizations can organize themselves better at the country level, and then the government can use them as distributors of fertilizers to their membership. So that might bring efficiency in the system, but also it might not mean additional costs to the individual farmers um, on the ground. Before the fertilizer subsidy program was introduced in Malawi, the annual food harvest was below the national requirement of 2.8 million metric tons. But since 2005, when the system was launched, Malawi has reaped a surplus of at least 700,000 metric tons. This made it possible to export some maize to Zimbabwe, Swaziland and Lesotho. The positive impact brought praise for both the government of former President the late Bingo Mtarika, his predecessor Joyce Banda, and now President Peter Mutarika, George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Rwandan and Ugandan police have started a joint disaster preparedness and management exercise. The exercise has attracted at least 32 police officers from both countries. The initiative comes at a time when the East African region is dealing with an influx of refugees and threats of terrorism. From Kikali, Silvanas Karimera reports. The four-day exercise, called named Save Life, is the first to be held between the two neighboring forces and it brings together the 30 participants to test their preparedness and response to humanitarian crises with the focus on readiness, joint contingency plans, a sharing of information, experience and technical expertise. Each institution has 15 participants. The process is still at the identification phase by which each of the two forces will identify its role in this process. This is Commissioner James Ochaya from Uganda. This kind of exercise is going to enable us to harmonize our policies so that when incidences of disaster occur, we are able to respond. Normally they say when uh, your neighbor's house is on fire, you don't sit and watch. You have to also go and help him. So this is the spirit that we want to enhance. Other areas that will be exhausted include refugee reception and screening, medical response, rescue and evaluation, communication and disaster management. The issue of understanding and management of asymmetrical threats like terrorism, organized crimes, human trafficking and gender-based violence are also on our agenda. This means that if a disaster or humanitarian crisis occurred in either country, the other will also engage in response. Police officers say Although the two neighboring countries are relatively peaceful, this does not guarantee sustainable security. You have heard from uh, the speech of my director eh, that you just don't sit and wait, but you must prepare. And it's like the coming of Jesus. He's coming soon. We are soon growing old, and he hasn't come. <laughs> but when he comes, will you go to heaven? So this is what we are trying to do that should any disaster occur, it should not take us by surprise, 
we should have the knowledge, we should have the capability to respond and save life. However, there was no intended specific deployment, but this synergy comes at a time when refugees from neighboring Burundi are crossing over to Rwanda every day. Rwanda's police spokesperson, Silestet Kwahirwa, admits that at this moment, what is being done it is still far from deployment. It is always said that it is better to have a plan when it is, ne is not needed than having no plan when it is required. So we are doing this early enough to be ready for any disaster. As you are aware, a disaster is always something that strikes without preparing you. So we must get prepared ahead of any kind of a disaster and have joint preparedness and joint plans to ensure we can respond appropriately. Uganda's High Commissioner to Rwanda, Charles Cabonero, said the exercise comes at a time when disasters have become a constant threat to the security and safety of the region. He singled out terrorist attacks that happened in Kampala in 2010, Garissa and Nairobi, Kenya respectively. Silvano Skalemera reporting for Channel Africa from Kigali. Bari, etise, mache, mingabu, baoni, kedu, mbote, ndemne, bonsoir. Join me, Richard Mwamba, for a brand new music show on Channel Africa called Africa in Song, every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa in Song, Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Remember, you can give us your views about our show. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is info at channelafrica.org. Let's get news headlines now with N. Musa. A very good morning to you. The interim president of the Central African Republic, Catherine Samba Panza, calls on rich donor countries to deliver on aid promised. African Union observers say Ethiopia's parliamentary election held on Sunday was credible except for a few irregularities. And an Egyptian court sentences eight militants to death for using violence against the security forces and belonging to groups that incite terrorism. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. Nuclear technology is playing its role in the management of valuable water resources along the River Nile in Africa. The Nile River Basin is an expansive area of groundwater found around the river itself, covering some 3.2 million square kilometers. Eleven countries depend on its groundwater, so the way it is managed is extremely important. The UN's International Atomic Energy Agency is using nuclear and isotopic techniques to see how and where the water in the basin is flowing. For more on this, UN Radio Steve Thatchett spoke to Callist Tinti. Tindi Mugaya, 
uh, from the Ministry of Water and Environments in Uganda and the chairperson of the steering committee for the Nile Groundwater Project. Uh, this project was basically started after realizing that groundwater is not being considered by the Nile Basin countries in the management of the shared resources. So this project was meant to come in to help the countries understand how important groundwater is in the basin and how the countries can jointly manage it as part of overall water resources management. Could you tell me how many countries are involved in this project? Yes, Nile Basin is made up of 11 countries, but right now 10 countries have been involved. So you can say all the countries that are involved in the Nile Basin initiative have been part of this project. Could you tell me what is this project all about? This project basically is trying to get the countries appreciate how the importance of groundwater. Right? Most of our countries, it is groundwater which is being used for domestic water supply. In some areas, it is being used for industrial development, for irrigation, but it hasn't been given adequate attention, again, because of limited information. So this project has tried, first of all, to get the countries to know where do we find groundwater? How is groundwater linked to surface water? And which are the important areas where groundwater needs to be given special consideration? And how groundwater can actually be integrated in the management of the basin's water resources? So how can nuclear techniques like isotope hydrology help in this project? Actually, isotope techniques have been very, very useful in identifying areas where groundwater and surface water interacting, probably isotope hydrology is the only technique that can help you to do that. So areas where, for example, groundwater is flowing into surface water, surface water is flowing into groundwater, isotopes are very, very good at that. They are quite cheap and you can do it instantly. Areas where wetlands are actually being fed by surface water or groundwater, isotopes help to do that. So these uh, isotope techniques have actually contributed a lot and have complemented the existing techniques that we have been using in the basin. How will this project benefit the people? Ideally, the people are depending on water for their social economic development. There is no activity that actually doesn't involve water. So the moment you get the people to understand the kind of resource they have, how important it is, the areas where the resource is in plenty or is limited, the areas where the resource is likely to get polluted or not, then you are actually helping people to support their activities through a resource that is available in the right quantity and quality. So we feel that having this information is going to help the basin countries to plan better, on how they can support their different socio-economic activities so that they are sustainable today and in the future. That's Carlist Tindi Mugaya, the chairperson of the steering committee for the Nile Groundwater Project, talking to UN Radio Steve Thatchett. An information and technology security summit is underway in Midrand, north of Johannesburg, here in South Africa. The gathering of digital security experts is aimed at strengthening digital security to businesses and protecting private internal information. Retired U.S. National Security Agency official William Binney says businesses and most governments globally are not moving faster to counter cyber crime. He was speaking about the rapidly rising digital abuse by hackers and terrorists around the world. Vusinkosi has more. 
Global computer security experts and business people around the world converged to the northern Johannesburg suburb Midrand to discuss ways to minimize the rise of cybercrime. According to the host of the summit, ITWeb, the computerized information security sector is said to be the fastest changing segment within the ever-evolving technology industry. A retired United States national security agent, William Binney, says government and businesses still lack innovative ways to detect and protect information from hackers. They know about weaknesses in systems, firewalls and operating systems and encryption. So that They know about weaknesses that exist, but they don't move to fix them. So when they don't do that, that weakens the network for everybody. They're not the only ones with smart people so that means that and hackers are pretty good at things at finding things so they certainly have other people in the world other governments other hackers around the world have the opportunity to find those same weaknesses and as long as they don't fix them they're making everybody in the, on the network vulnerable that's a very short-sighted approach because they're looking at it from their perspective only it gives them an end to you what everybody's doing Meanwhile, it is reported that the number of businesses globally are not constantly updating their computer security systems. A corporate computer security expert, Dominic White, says the reason why there is no consistency in security updates is the high cost of security update softwares. Right now, the industry's got a bit of a problem in that there's no easy way to do it. So it generally requires some investment within information security, so provide tools to defend against things. It also requires investment people who have expertise that can, can advise and assist with this stuff. And then just to have a focus on that focus needs to be in line with what your actual risk profile is. So if you're a big financial organization, got lots of people, for example, a bank trying to steal money, you need to have an appropriately large investment in security. On the flip side, if you're running a local cafe on the corner, things like antivirus and email security are probably good enough. The information technology industry is predominantly male. This is according to project manager of Women in IT, an organization that works to empower women in the IT sector. Nongleba Khasmeni says women are not availing themselves for IT opportunities and those that are available are not directly involved in development programs. What we encounter is, especially when we're trying to get women or young girl learners to come up for the bursary programs, although they are studying, they're not coming up and showing that they want to study or they want the opportunities that are presented to them. We find that a lot of women, we have a lot of women in IT, but they are not telling their stories, therefore not making it a career of choice for many young girls. Because I find if girls know that other women exist within IT, they will lean toward taking the careers up. They don't know the kind of careers that are available to them within the IT industry. So I think I find that women don't know. The Web Security Conference will conclude on Wednesday. For Channel Africa, I'm Vusingosi in Johannesburg. A new report says nearly half of the global population will be using the internet by the end of this year. The International Telecommunication Union predicts that 3.2 billion people will be online. The population currently stands at 7.2 billion. About 2 billion of these will be in the developing world. But just 89 million will be in countries such as Somalia and Nepal. Experts say ICTs will play an even more significant role in the post-2015 development agenda and in achieving future sustainable development goals as the world moves faster and faster towards a digital society. Our question today is, how has new technology changed your life and are African governments taking technology seriously? Give us your thoughts. Email us on info at channelafrica.co.za. Send us an SMS to... 27-796-957-930 or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or at Channel Africa 1. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, 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 Africa,
The International Telecommunication Union has released new figures which indicate that over the past 15 years, information and communication technologies have grown in an unprecedented way, providing huge opportunities for social and economic development. To find out more on this, Wandele Kalipa interviewed Susan Telsha, Head of Information and Communication Technology Data Statistics at the International Telecommunication Union. Yes, sure. We have published a new set of indicators which reflect end 2015 estimates provided by ITU for a number of core ICT indicators. And we specifically looked at the 15-year period since the launch of the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals, in the year 2000. So we looked at the 2000 to 2015 period and identified the progress, but also the remaining gaps. So, for example, with respect to Internet users, we had in the year 2000 around 400 million Internet users globally, and this number has increased incredibly since then to 3.2 billion Internet users worldwide by the year 2015. So that's significant progress. And in particularly, we have now also many Internet users in developing countries, which we hardly had any at the year 2000. So there has been an incredible progress in that. Then we have shown other indicators also and see how they evolved over the 15-year period. And we have found, for example, that today almost 100% of the global population lives somewhere where they are covered by a mobile cellular network. So that's also an incredible progress since over the past 15 years. And we all know that mobile cellular uptake has grown incredibly in all countries in the world. But then there's also other gaps, of course, that need to be still addressed when it comes to broadband, for example. There are still big divides between developed and developing countries as far as broadband access is concerned, especially if you move outside the urban areas. And since in many developing countries, people, there's still a large share of the population living in rural areas, this is now the focus of the next years to come to also connect the people who live in the rural areas. Now, what happens with those that are still being left behind? Well, they are, of course, also excluded from all the information and knowledge and services and applications that are available through the Internet and through broadband. So, therefore, this is why it's so important to address them because today there are a lot of benefits that can be achieved by being connected. There are many services that are disseminated through the Internet in the areas of education, of health, of e-government services that people who are not connected yet do not have access to. This is why it's very important to reach out and make sure that we will have universal access to ICTs and especially to high-quality Internet access in the future. Now, talking about the 3G mobile broadband coverage how has it expanded is it the same as uh, with uh, the internet it is expanding also rapidly luckily 2g i said it's already almost 100 percent 3g coverage of the population we have estimated to be around 70 percent in 2015 or 69 percent to be precise 
which means that there is still 30% of the global population that does not live within reach of a 3G mobile signal, and most of these are in rural areas. So rural coverage is expanding. There's now about 30% of the rural population that is covered, but that leaves 70% of the rural population that are actually not yet covered. So this is certainly a precondition for people to get access to mobile broadband since the fixed networks are not very widespread in outside the urban areas. So that's very important, but that's also expanding. And once the services, the infrastructure, the network coverage are in place, then also the operators will start to offer those services, of course, in those rural areas. And then it is a matter of pricing and other criteria for people to buy the services and get access and connect it. Looking at a fixed broadband uptake, why is it growing at a slower pace? Because in developed countries you have already quite good penetration and it has been growing more slowly there already for a few years. In developing countries or less lower income countries, there's a lot of focus on the mobile broadband rollout and less on the fixed broadband rollout for a number of reasons, including costs and so on and so forth. That was Susan Telcher, Head of Information and Communication Technology Data Statistics at International Communication Union, on the line from Geneva talking to Wandile Kalipa. Let's get economics news now with Joalani Tulu. Thank you, Asanda. Good morning. Nigerian President-elect Muhammadu Buhari has to face the challenge of restoring the country's economic stability after his inauguration on Friday. The Nigerian economy, Africa's biggest, has been badly hit by fuel shortages over the last few weeks. Fuel supplies are only being slowly restored after a deal was reached this week between the Abuja government and oil marketers who said they have not they had not been paid in full. A Nigerian senator, Nuruddin Abatengi, Usman is excited about the inauguration. I dare say that um, the coming of Muhammad Buhari comes with a lot of hope, a lot of expectation, not only for Nigerians but indeed the rest of the world. Fuel shortages in Nigeria have brought many companies in the country to a standstill. South African mobile giant MTN has seen its Nigerian operations affected by the crisis. South African Airways spokesperson Tladi Tladi says SAA flights from Nigeria are being delayed. We are in constant liaison with the airport authorities in, in Lagos and the notification that we have received today was that the situation should be able to return to normalcy by Thursday. That means that as of Thursday, alternatively on Friday at the latest, our operations out of Lagos to Johannesburg will return to normal and the flying time will be as it is known by our passengers. South Africa's economy has grown at a disappointing pace in the first quarter of this year, hit by the contraction in both agriculture and manufacturing. The local unemployment rate aged up 
Gross domestic profit rose an annualized 1.3% from the previous quarter. The growth in the local agricultural and manufacturing sectors fell 16.6% quarter-on-quarter and 2.4% quarter-on-quarter respectively. The unemployment rate climbed to 26.4%, the highest level in 11 years. The rand fell as low as 12 rand 08 against the US dollar yesterday, the local unit's weakest level since May the 12th from 11 rand 95 before the data was released. Tanzania's government has agreed to a deal to buy back a 35% stake in a state-run telecommunications company from the local subsidiary of India's top mobile carrier Bharti Airtel for $7.7 million. The East African nation says it wants to regain 100% ownership of the Tanzania Telecommunications Corporation to recapitalize the cash-strapped firm which provides mobile, voice, data and fixed-line services. Legal procedures are now being finalized for the government to buy back Airtel shares in TTCL and regain sole ownership of the company. And finally, a $750 million project to produce ethanol and sugar in Angola will start next month after a year of delays as costs rose 50% on a plantation larger than Montreal. Biocom plans to produce 36,000 metric tons of sugar this year starting in June. The company is targeting 6,000 cubic meters of ethanol production this year. Angola, Africa's second largest crude oil producer after Nigeria, wants to, di- to diversify its economy away from oil, which accounts for about 95 percent of exports. The nation of 24 million people imports 225,000 tons of sugar annually and consumes around 400,000 tons of the sweetener each year. Taking a look at the financial indicators this hour, the U.S. dollar is trading at 11.99 South African rand, at 9.68 Botswana Pula and at 7.10 Zambian Kwacha. It is also trading at 0.64 to the British pound and at 0.91 to the euro. On the commodity on the commodities market, gold is trading at $1,187 and platinum at $1,128 an ounce. And finally, the price of burn crude oil is at $63.85 a barrel. For Channel Africa, I'm Cholani Tulo. Thank you, Jalane. Today is Wednesday, the 27th of May. It's the 147th day of 2015. There are 218 days left in the year. This is what happened today in 1963. Jomo Kenyatta was elected Kenya's first prime minister following that country's independence from Britain. In 1964, he became the first president of the Republic of Kenya. In 1971, today, President Alwa el-Sadat of Egypt signs a 15-year friendship treaty with the Soviet Union. In 1985, in Beijing, representatives of Britain and China exchanged instruments of ratification for an accord returning Hong Kong to Chinese control in 1997. Also today in 2005, testimony ended in the Michael Jackson child molestation trial after prosecutors showed jurors a video of the accuser being interviewed by police and the defense rested. Jackson was later acquitted. In 1964, independent India's first prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru dies. In 1995, U.S. actor Christopher Reeve was left paralyzed when he was thrown from his horse during a jumping event in in Charlottesville, Virginia. 
And in 2010, today, the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee and the full House approved measures to repeal the 1993 Don't Ask, Don't Tell law that allowed gay people to serve in the armed services, provided they hid their sexual orientation. Those are the interesting facts that happened today, 27 May. Let's get news uh, in the sports world now with Tammy Kluza. In your sport, thanks for joining us. Nigeria and Liverpool forward Asasad Oshawala has been named as the BBC Women's Footballer of the Year. The 20-year-old forward is the first player to win the new award from the BBC World Service, voted for by football fans around the world. Oshwala, she beat Spain, Veronica Bosk, German Nadine Kessler, Scott Kim Little and Brazilian Mata to the honour. Her performances led to Nigeria to the finals of the Under-20 World Cup in Canada last summer, where they were narrowly beaten by Germany as she was also a major influence in the senior Nigerian team who won the African Women's Championships in October. South Africa's under-fire Bafana Bafana coach Ephraim Sheikh Mashaba says that his team will do better in today's Kosafa Cup plate semi-final against Malawi in Rustenburg. The host dropped the plate competition after being the host rather dropped to plate competition after being knocked out by Botswana in the quarter-final of the main event on Sunday. And here is Bafana coach Sheikh Mashaba. This game that is coming, it's an opportunity. For all of us, not only the players, I mean, for them to do well and win this uh, game, it will mean, yes, we can do something as players and as technical committee. Yes, we managed to rectify going to the final to bonus. Ghana will face Zambia in the second plate semi-final after losing to Madagascar on Monday night. The other semi-finals will take place tomorrow between Madagascar and Namibia and Botswana will face Mozambique. In tennis, Rafael Nadal began his quest for a 10th French Open title with a straight-sets victory over teenage Quentin Hellis. Frenchman Hellis, an 18-year-old wildcard, had the Roland Garros crowd on his side but was not consistent enough to double the champion and succeed Nadal won 6-3-6-3-6-4 in one hour and 50 minutes on court Philippe Chetriam. In rugby, South African Springbok victory in the 1995 Rugby World Cup is still inspiring young rugby players 20 years later. And Chester Williams, who was part of that team, feels that this year the Springboks cannot be written off as they aim to win the South Africa's third title. The build-up to this year's World Cup reminds Williams of their experience ahead of the 1995 tournament when the Springboks weren't given a chance. Well, when we uh, won the Rugby World Cup in 1994, we lost a few games against England, for our argument's sake, and we did not play well against uh, the All Blacks. Uh, and in 1995, we won the Rugby World Cup, so we were written off, and yet we won the Rugby World Cup. And I always say, you know, when the right South Africa off, that's when we at our most dangerous because uh, we like to be underdogs, and once you're underdogs, we, we actually become champions. Williams recalled what happened on the historic day when they won the World Cup. When we got to the stadium, you know, we were uh, received by a huge crowd of supporters and most probably 90% of our players believe or that um, this is going to be a special day for us as a, as a Springbok team and as South Africans. Walk in the change room, just 20 minutes before the change room, Nelson Manila walk in the Springbok record jersey. That was enough, said the t- change room went dead quiet and we were just sitting there.
And finally in golf, the Dubai duty-free Irish Open is being backed by the Rory McIlroy Foundation. And Rory has used his influence to make sure that a great field and one of the world's biggest golf courses, the Royal Countdown, is counted amongst the best. Irish professional golfer Shane Laurie is happy to be part of this tournament. It's a little bit extra special because I obviously won it when I was an amateur and it, and it gave me that kind of springboard that I needed to, to turn pro and you know, progress in my career. So yeah, it means a lot. I mean, um, I'm desperate to kind of try and, you know, I'd love to get another win in, in the tournament and I'd love to, to chalk it up as, as winning as a pro and an amateur would be pretty cool. So yeah, it means a lot. That's the end of our sport and back to Asando Matsaunyani. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Tami. Let's recap our top stories from this hour. Kenya says no police officer was killed in Al-Shabaab attack. Concerns over the current humanitarian situation in Burundi and efforts get underway in Mali to provide food to 3 million people. In economics, Zambia cuts its power generation by 300 megawatts. And in sports, Nigerian striker wins BBC Women's Footballer of the Year award. That's where we end Africa Rise and Shine on this Wednesday. Thank you so much for tuning into our show. I'm Asanda Mazzaunyane. Thanks to our producer, Pumuzora Magadza, our technical producer, Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, and on news, Jualane on economics, and Tami on sport. We'd love to hear your comments about our show. Please send them to us via email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. You can also SMS two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Here is Zolanim Kiva now with a track titled United States of Africa taking us to the top of the hour. Let's work together for one day soon.
Amor 